Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Peter Lehrman and this is Masters in Small Business M&A. This show is an ongoing exploration into the vast and undercovered world of small business M&A, where we interview both the proven and the emerging owners, operators, investors, and advisors whose strategies and methods for transaction success have been put to the test. The show aims to surface the nuanced intricacies, the key ingredients, and the important factors that can improve your decision-making in your own journey in the world of small business M&A. This podcast is produced by Axial, an online platform that makes it easier for business owners and their M&A advisors to find, research, and privately connect with a diverse mix of professional buyers of small businesses. In addition to learning more about Axial, you can find this podcast show notes, edited transcripts, and many other related resources, all for free at Axial.com. Peter Lehrman is the CEO of Axial. All opinions expressed by Peter and podcast guests do not reflect the views or opinions of Axial. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Podcast guests may have ongoing client relationships with Axial. Folks, welcome back to Masters in Small Business M&A. This is your host, Peter Lehrman. I am super excited to dive in with David Ashagian managing partner and founder of the Panther Equity Group. David, great to have you with us on Friday. Thanks for making some time before you end your week. Likewise. Thanks for having me, Peter. I want to get right into your tour of duty as a CEO. You were a search fund entrepreneur, raised some outside capital from friends and family, and then put a bunch of your own capital into buying a business. And if I'm not mistaken, that was after business school or that was... I consider my career at Guggenheim my version of business school, but no, just did undergrad at USC, no formal business school after. Okay, got it. So yeah, like just start us, take yourself back in your mind, start us at you're at the closing table or just after the closing table of that transaction. Just tell us a little bit about the business and we'll dive into the journey from there. Yeah. Sounds great, Peter. So yeah, we closed on the acquisition, I think it was October of 2017, proprietary. So it was a company I reached out to cold. Started the search fund actually in 2016 and just wanted to look within IT services. The reason why I thought that was technology's hot, technology's sexy, but IT, it's almost like the forgotten cousin or stepsister within technology. Back then, no one's really thinking about IT the way they're thinking about managed services or cybersecurity today. So reached out to about 500 MSPs, maybe got about 100, 120 of them under NDA, got about three or four of them at the LOI phase and got one across the finish line. So this was two founders here in Culver City or in Los Angeles weren't getting along very well at the time. And this was the right place, right time for them to, to part ways. It was about a million in EBITDA, had friends and family and most of my life savings actually after Guggenheim going the deal. Was fortunate that the SBA program was a perfect fit for me as well and some seller financing. So I thought the hard part was finding the deal and closing the deal and then learned thereafter. Operations is a whole other five-dimensional beast. So yeah, honestly, stepping in, I was very fortunate to have good people around me. Had some extended family that had telecom and IT experience, and they were very good partners to me, kind of helping think through the business model. And one of the co-founders of the IT company, we actually kept them around for about 10 months to help with some account management, help with some larger customers. But yeah, you never know what to expect in operations till you're thrown in. So for me, I was not a technical person. I had to learn about IT had to learn about networking, about network design as I was learning about managing employees. And I think the biggest challenge for me personally, being 26, 27 at the time, was managing people that were 10 to 15 years older than you, 
right? So I think that was something that I kind of took for granted. And you just learn in any other position, trial by fire, kind of drinking from the fire hose, learned a lot technically, learned a lot about account management, learned a lot about service delivery philosophy, right? I think as an IT provider and like other service providers, you have to be paranoid, right? You have to be thinking, how can I make my customers' lives easier, right? What headaches can I take on to make them happy? And for me, coming from an investment banking background, there's only so much you get to be exposed like that. The MDs really get more in that account management perspective. As an analyst, you're just kind of working in Excel, working on PowerPoint pitches. So as I kind of shared before, you really learn by making mistakes. Good example was we had an employee misclassification of hourly versus salaried employee, right? So starting to have some issues with the employee, starting to think through how do I get this person to perform better? Talk to an employment attorney. He's like, well, give him a write-up, put on paper, like a formal review. Here's where we'd like you to be. How do we get there? So did that once, didn't really work. Waited a few weeks, did that again. Started to realize the person was not a fit for the organization, wanted to show them the door. So following procedures from my attorney, we kind of had severance docs, a severance check to leave, and a release of liability and waiver. Wade did not sign it, walked out. Three weeks later, was hit with a, a mini lawsuit, had to go to the employment board, right? So these are little war stories that you don't really know how to handle situations till you get there. Now, looking back, was a good experience, but we had a quasi-public-private customer, right? Can't say the name, get ransomware right? And they were under the impression that we were giving them certain backup services. We told them we were not getting backup. Ransomware actually kind of took them down for a few days. Operationally, they were still okay, but a lot of records were not recoverable. We tried to help them. We tried to do right by them, get them in the right disaster recovery experts, tried to get them synced up with some cloud providers going forward. Things were going well. And then I walked into the office one day, thought I was getting an Amazon package, signed for a document and found out I'd been served, right? Never really been served before, never saw a lawsuit with my name on it. So I like to joke, I've been bar mitzvah, right? In the Jewish culture, that's your way of becoming a man. But I think for me, getting hit with a, <laughs> a serve situation in the office was the business world of coming to or becoming an adult or man. So little things like that. And then you also learn how to sell. You learn how to become a good salesman. You learn how to understand what does the client want? How do we price for it can be a profitable endeavor for us, but removing pain points for them? I'll kind of pause there, but those are kind of examples of the CEO journey that you learn along the way and you make mistakes and keep going. When you look back, you, you own the business from 2017 till 2020, right? Yes. How do you think the business changed the most over that period? What were the areas of change when you look back on things? Yeah, it's a good question. There were customers that I think were, were used to certain ways of business with previous ownership, right? They were used to immediacy of results, immediacy of ticket answering, right? So we were a managed service provider. Everything was done remotely through our ticketing system. So some of it was customer re-education of we have to have SLAs, service level agreements. There needs to be standardization of certain types of issues have reasonable turnaround as opposed to, I think, the way it was run before, which was working at the size that it was, was customers were always expecting certain things within 15 to 20 minutes of ticket submission. And I think that's fine if you're not trying to build for scale or growth, but when you're trying to add in right more revenue and you don't need to hire incrementally every time you hit certain revenue thresholds, the way you do that is by having triage, having customer escalation, right? Do you 
prioritize $10,000 a month customer that has a splinter or a $500 a month customer that's having a heart attack, right? These are little things where if you have SLA escalation based on a password reset versus a font issue versus a service impacting issue is important. So we started to build out some of those systems internally. Some customers just wasn't a fit. They kind of want immediacy. We either got fired or we had to fire customers. So I think that was a big mover for us, which is let's focus on what is good for sustainable growth, not keeping the lights on every day. And there were some employees that just weren't a fit for that, right? Either they weren't happy and they decided to quit or we had to quit. We had to fire them rather. So I think those are examples of what changed, I'd say the first 18 months. And then kind of fast forwarding, actually, by end of year two, we started to see there was a vendor of ours, an internet service provider, right? Where we had some shared customers. They were providing fiber or broadband or voice over IP product services to our customers or mutual customers where we were handling their server administration, firewall, email security, all all that. And when things would go wrong, right, it wouldn't become a finger pointing contest of who is to blame. So we liked the way that this vendor did business. We started to talk and say, are there ways we can cross sell more to each other's customer base? And the conversation just naturally developed to, what if we put these two businesses together? There's a lot we can do from a co-branding perspective. There's a lot we can do from a cross selling opportunity perspective. And then there's a lot we can do for new customers to actually offer bundled services offering. So this was a conversation that started in 2019, and we ended up putting the businesses together early 2020. And I stayed on. I want to come back to this. Okay. This is the exit story, and it's a super cool one. I want to, before we get to the exit, you're moving too quickly for me. I want to, so (laughs) the triage that you guys began to develop and the SLA framework, that's interesting. You came into this business with limited IT expertise yourself. I know you had picked IT services as a category to pursue. Sure. How did you decide to make that a priority? How were you figuring out the kinds of changes that you wanted to make? Who was influencing what you prioritized? How were you learning what to prioritize? I just want to hear a little bit about how you began to make prioritization decisions as a first-time CEO. Yeah, it's a very good question. I think during diligence, we spent when we first met the company to close. And you know how it is in the deal side. You're always talking to like five to 10 companies. But from the first meeting to close was maybe 10 months, right? Small businesses take time. There's there's emotional considerations, partnership. But for a handful of months, we saw this is a great margin business, great cash flowing business. But there just wasn't a lot of structure in terms of who handles what, in terms of how projects are managed, in terms of how customers are dealt with systemically. So we kind of knew going in that the business had to just have more formalization, whether it's you know cloud services of documentation. They were using some old product called KeyPass, right? And we moved to another commonly used one now called ITGlue. ITGlue, I think, was acquired by ConnectWise or Kaseya. So we kind of knew what the systems and, and the groundwork was during diligence. And we knew that's a first order that we need to focus on. If not, it's always going to run like a lifestyle business. If we really want to focus about growth, sustainability, and allow engineering to operate without management continuing to touch stuff, you have to have the systems and transparency to manage people, but also the systems and transparency for engineers to self-manage themselves, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
And did the sellers during the diligence process refer to these ideas as like things that they had always wanted to do and that they sort of, I'm just sort of curious whether the sellers were like, if I was going to run the business for another 10 years, I would do X, Y, and Z. Or were you coming up with these ideas for how to professionalize the business through your own diligence and through advisors that you had advising you? I'm just curious how much of these ideas came from the sellers that were already in the business and they were just tired or they were like, that's the next thing we want to do or whether they were, whether you came to these ideas yourself through, through your own diligence with the benefit of either your own creativity or like other people helping you in the diligence phase, figure out what to do next. Yeah, it's a good question. I'd say it's two prong. One, it's almost like scatter plot. You start seeing the data starts going a certain direction. So I, I share that in the sense that the sellers didn't really point to this as an area. It was more like the seller saying, we're always thinking, do we go after more revenue or do we hire, right? So there was always this bandwidth issue that they were talking about. And like I said, I had some advisors around me that knew IT and telecom quite well. So their thought was, hey, you need to have formalization. You need to have professionalization. I can't really take much of the credit my own, but being a type A and organized person by nature, it just kind of felt like this is a good actionable thing to do. But I'd say outside of that, the sellers kept talking about there's a lot that we can do by focusing more on cloud services, focusing more on reselling telecom products. The business to date was about 90% recurring revenue. The other 10% was just hardware reselling, which you're not making much, much margin on anyways. So, you know, like to close the loop, I guess, founders, the sellers were saying, we're always tight with bandwidth, trying to figure out how to focus on that. There's opportunity for revenue expansion being telecom and cloud and forward-thinking strategies as opposed to just help desk support. And then advisors around me kind of saying, if you want to focus on growth, it needs to be able to stand up on its own and the organization can't just be band-aided, so to speak. What about talent and the, the nature of the talent in the organization over the three-year period? What were some of the big things that changed from a talent perspective? Are there any key hires or any key departures that you had to withstand? Just what was the talent journey over that period? Yeah, happy you brought that up, actually. So we started actually leveraging some some resources in Serbia, in Belgrade. So we started to see, a lot, this was pre-COVID, right? So in 2017, 2018, we started to see a lot could be done remotely. 90% of our tickets were really done remotely. Only time you have to send a field tech or dispatch to customer sites is when you're having a physical outage, right? When backup batteries aren't working or firewalls or servers aren't coming back online, when a customer is like, hey, we bought 10 PCs or can you guys build 10 PCs for us for new employees and then come to our site and, and set it up. But outside of that, a lot was done remotely. So with people around me, like I said, that were helping me out, they're like, hey, we've tested out some resources abroad in Serbia. It's working for our business. Why don't you see if you can do the same? And, you know, they were very good partners and helped open the door to that same knock. That company is still there. I think they've kind of moved for geographic and safety reasons during COVID. But we were able to hire level one dispatch, level one and level two engineering, and believe it or not, some account management all remotely in Serbia. So that was a big push for us. And I think once we started to have some challenges with new hires here in the States, right? And in Los Angeles and California, being an employer is just candidly, it's tough. We were able to find very good, talented labor that was extremely happy for the opportunity to work for an American company, get treated well, get paid well. And candidly, from a business perspective, you're not paying payroll tax, you're not paying health insurance, and you're able to get rock star talent for 70% of the cost here in the States. So, you know, for us at the time, it was a good strategy. 
So we were able to hire remotely. And as the company went on, we started focusing more on cloud, started focusing more on level three engineering as opposed to level one, level two, which is what a lot of the company did to date. So for context, that's people that have comfort and excitement around Azure or Google Cloud or AWS, as a lot of our SMB customers were starting to move to the cloud and embracing it, we had to get more technically competent to maintain those accounts and be proactive in making recommendations to keep customers happy. And so when you were hiring in Serbia, were you guys hiring through a third-party entity? Good question. We were. So there was an entity there, and they were doing all the HR, all the local tax, all the payroll. And we would, we would pay them as a vendor. So they weren't even a W2, they were 1099, which I think helps out for a lot of reasons. And you're saying, roughly speaking, each employee on a fully loaded basis, fully grossed up, was about 30% lower than in America? Or you're saying 70% lower? 70% lower than American labor and American talent. Okay. So it's pretty significant. Yeah. Any challenges associated with managing time zones or other elements of like, you know, because you always hear about offshoring and, oh, there's just like this huge ARP opportunity and offshoring. And I, in particular, see a lot of people make that mistake in terms of hardcore software engineering development. They do that offshore and they have a real disaster on their hands, like where they they think they're going to get like really high quality coding done, you know, somewhere halfway around the world. And it just ends up being way cheaper, but it takes they never get the project done or it just takes forever. So I think there's certain kinds of offshoring that's more feasible than than others. Yeah, just curious whether or not you found like there were some real competencies that you needed to develop in order to manage that capability. Very good question. So I think there's different ways to think about offshoring. There's kind of augmented hands where they help out as needed. There's dedicated resources where it's like, here's your here's your person, right? Use it for six months. And the version we were using was, this is your dedicated team member. They just happen to be remote and they just happen to be using the company we were using for HR purposes. So the reason why that's important is that they were fully loaded employees of ours, right? They just happen to be going through an agency, so to speak, for that to work. So culturally, it's a key distinction because those hires remotely felt like they were part of our team, right? And because they really were, they were in our Microsoft Teams chats. We would do group hangouts for birthdays. We would buy stuff and either ship it or there was a local manager for the company we were using and they would get them stuff. They would do formal reviews and we would help them do the review process. So it was really our team that happened to be remotely. I went once or twice, I forget in hindsight, to Belgrade, to Serbia, spend time with them. So I think it was a unique partnership. I think it's hard to find situations like that. But for us, this company was great. And you found them through one of your customers that already sort of put their finger on this group in Serbia. And that's how you sort of figured out who was potentially a good partner to work with over there. Great question. It was the the vendor that I, I jumped on a little bit too early that we ended up merging with. So they had a team there as well. And then we started to realize there's a lot we can start doing together. And it naturally developed over time. Did you make any big executive hires within the organization in, in Los Angeles over your time horizon? Yeah, we had a, a, you know, I wouldn't say a CTO, but we had a very senior engineer. You know, he knew Azure very well. He knew ESXi, VMware. I'm kind of throwing out, you know, IT solutions, but he understood networking very well. He understood cloud server topographies very well. He helped orchestrate some customers that had multi-site locations that wanted to have a private cloud infrastructure. So that person we found kind of just through online linking, I think it was either LinkedIn 
or ZipRecruiter or Monster. Yeah, he was, for us at the time, was significant. It was like $170,000, $180,000 a year employee. He was great and he helped mentor some of the first year or some of the rather level one engineers that we had. So for us, he was a, he was a tremendous resource and a good hire. So let's get to COVID and the exit. And you exited the business in 2020 to, to just deliver the punchline for you. And you exited to a vendor. You did not exit by running a sale process. When you went into 2020, where was your head at regarding running the business versus exiting? Where That's what ended up happening that year. COVID happened and you merged with a vendor. But where was your head at at the beginning of that year? Like, What were you thinking about in terms of exit timeline? Were you thinking about it? Were you not? Like, Just where were you at before all of this went down? Yeah, kind of thinking back and trying to put myself in my own shoes back then. Don't think I had a clear timeline at that time. It was about, you know, just about two years in when we thought an exit would make sense. But the conversation just naturally developed when we thought, hey, let's put these two businesses together. My plan was post-merger to maybe stay on for three or four years because there was a lot we could do. But, you know, candidly, we, we had some mechanisms in place for growth. And if we were able to hit that, it would give me a nice off-ramp. And we just kind of hit those in a very accelerated way. So it wasn't a formalized earnout, but it felt like that. And when COVID happened, right, I, I like to joke in Los Angeles and California, where 50% of the combined entities, customers, maybe a little bit more were based, people had to go remote yesterday, right? So it was actually a fantastic time because we were able to start offering IT support, remote help desk, getting people in the cloud. So if people were on-prem, help them get to the cloud. If they were hybrid, help them go fully remote, right? If there was some law firms or some professional service providers that they really wanted their employees to work remote, but remote onto company-owned infrastructure laptops, it was funny. We actually, we actually had to help some customers that were not in office increase their internet pipe so they could handle more VPNs, handle more incoming traffic. So it, it was a good time for the business and can't pretend to say that the, the timing was planned, but it ended up being very fruitful for everyone and just kind of allowed for a nice organic story and for me to exit in full at the end of 2020. When did the, the merger dialogue know? How did it become merger dialogue versus just sort of like cross-selling dialogue with a vendor? Like, how, tell us about that. Yeah, we had a shared, I think there's still a customer. We had a shared nonprofit customer in, in Southern California. I think on the IT side, it was paying us like 15,000 a month. So it was a very nice customer. And then they were having a ton of issues, a ton of issues with their phone system, internet connection. And we brought this vendor in and they're like, we can do the same thing. We can probably do it for 10 to 15% less and we'll treat them right. And when I heard that, I'm like, okay, let's let's try. So the, the customer had a shop to a few vendors, right? We brought in two or three. This one was one of them. We had them present and we said, hey, we know this vendor, right? It's more of a boutique. I mean, much larger than us, but they're still a boutique compared to a Spectrum or a Level 3 or a CenturyLink, but they'll do a good job. And then the customer gave us the faith. We ended up working with them. And when there were outages, the way our engineers kind of troubleshot together, hopping on calls, right, getting on email chains, actually going to the customer site. We had our field tech working with their field tech and another engineer firewall, right? Old school GUI going to the system. We're like, there's a lot we can do from a customer standpoint of service delivery, but the brands were different. Why try to sell a customer on a sister solution with two different brands if we can just say we can do it together, right? So I think there was some of that. That was maybe summer of 2019. And then as conversations developed of, 
Should we reach out to customers together from a marketing perspective? We're co-branded differently. Is it weird? Turned into, what if we put these businesses together? And then that really finalized with an office move, ironically, in January or February of 2020. And then a month and a half later, we all go remote. So that's kind of the transition there, if it makes sense. Was there anything thorny about the, It sounds a little bit like Cinderella. I mean, was there anything thorny about the way that it ultimately consummated? Yeah, yeah. G- good question. I'd say on the ISP side, they were much better troubleshooters and engineers than we were on the IT side, right? And the reason for that being is that when things go wrong with IT, sometimes it's customer impacting, sometimes it's not, right? On the telco side, if there's an issue with your modem, if there's an issue with the connection, you have a hard down scenario. So if you're helping a medical office or you're helping a law firm and something goes wrong as an internet service provider, you're feeling it and the customer is is running after you right away. So I bring that up to say that candidly, some engineers on the IT side just didn't cut it and we had to fire some people. You know, obviously those are people I knew for two years, two and a half was not easy. Some people we helped transition out. Some people we helped them find another job. Some people we transitioned them to part-time, but there were a few layoffs that had to happen, which was obviously not easy for me, not easy for the company, but kind of focusing on what's going to be best suited for the customers. And our goal was to cross-train engineers on the IT side and cross-train engineers on the telco side to be able to support both because that's where you get the aggregation of fixed labor, which is beneficial for customers, beneficial for revenue, beneficial for margins. So that was a challenge, honestly, dealing with that and the human element, not something anyone ever wants to do, but certainly something that happened. You started Panther Equity Group. Tell us about the decision to start your own investment business after being a CEO. Like, how are you surveying the landscape of business opportunities and career opportunities for yourself? In theory, you could have gone and been another acquirer, an operator of a business. I mean, just how are you thinking through the different options that you had after you had merged the business and you were a free man again? (laughs) Yeah, no, it's it's a good question. So it took me about four months or so, I want to say, as I was winding down, transitioning out to think about what's next. I think at the heart of it was, you know, I don't follow sports, right? I don't follow other things I think people my age love to do. I love businesses, right? I love understanding business models, kind of a business junkie, also a deal junkie, right? So for me, starting to look back at it, I thought I loved the search process of finding a company. I loved the deal process and I loved being involved with a business, but I didn't know if I want to be tied to one business and one business only for another four to seven years, right? I thought my skill sets, my interests really aligned with being involved with companies, but maybe three, four, five at a time where I'm not dialed into one 60, 70 hours a week, but can kind of build a portfolio over time. So taking a step back, that's kind of what interested me the most. And I felt having run a small business, having bought a small business, kind of comes with its own badge of honor. It's not easy to do. It's not easy to understand the psyche and the emotions of a seller having been in their shoes and having gotten a deal done. So I thought that'd be very unique for me to become an independent sponsor and found Panther Equity Group, if that makes sense. Yeah. So what was sort of roughly day one for Panther Equity Group? I want to say like early March or so. Kind of got the website going a little bit earlier, logo, some legal, started finding some folks operationally that I knew I could lean on. But it took time to just really focus what's exciting, what's not, where do I think capital can fit into the equation as well. That took probably first three or four months. What's the order of operations when you start a de novo independent sponsor? Like, of course, legal and website, I understand those things. But in terms of finding deals, 
raising capital, developing conversations with LPs? How have you approached? There's a lot of different directions that you can go in, and there's probably some good arguments for various orders of operation to it all. So how have you gone about just managing the order of operations when you're a independent sponsor of one? And it's, you know, there's a lot of different people that you probably want to be having conversations with. Like, what's been the order of operations for you? Yeah, very fair question. I think as I was kind of going through that journey of what I want to do next, I spoke to a handful of family offices to see like, what are you guys seeing in the market? What's interesting? How are you thinking about capital allocation? And the themes I just started to hear from friends or folks in PE, friends and folks in family offices, was that capital is there, right? Opportunities were really the hard things to find. So I started to say, okay, once I can start focusing on a thesis, which I did, started to focus on deal flow, right? Started to get back in the groove of talking to owners, talking to founders, understanding what is the small business, the way I define it, 2 to 12 million of EBITDA or you know, 12, 15 million enterprise value up to 75. What are people expecting? What's kind of the cadence of processes? And then once I got in the rhythm of talking to companies, intermediaries, bankers for deals, then started really focusing on the capital side. Because I think at the end of the day, if you're presentable, if you're hardworking, if you're an honest person, right, and you know how to talk to capital partners, they're open to talking to you. But at the end of the day, they can like you, you can like them. There's not much to dance around if there isn't a deal to be had, right? So I started to focus really on the assets being the deals, being the companies, and then used opportunities in a good way to have dialogues, either formal or informal, with SBICs. For folks that are listening, don't know, small business, investment capital. These are groups that can do debt and equity investments from five to 35 million, kind of across the stack of debt and equity. The funded PE groups, right, that, that want to do bigger deals, that work with independent sponsors, or a handful of institutional groups that all they do is equity, but they're not control and they want to back independent sponsors. So to sum it all up, went a little bit of thesis to finding deals, to then broadening the capital, the capital book there, and then finding good operating partners along the way. It sounds like the way that you went about finding the business that you bought and ran, it sounds like that was largely outbound direct to business owners. Is that right? Yes, that is right. And for better, or for worse, have some allergic reactions to just doing that again. You do. You have allergic reactions to doing that again. Personally do. I think if there's if there's a lawyer or an insurance agent or an accountant that has a good relationship with a company that can kind of be your river guide, I think that those are really exciting. Outside of that, I think proprietary cold outreach is not a bad philosophy. I think it can just take anywhere from a year to two years to get those sellers emotionally there, have them understand what does the process look like. Right. And when there's no intermediary kind of coaching them along the way, it's hard to educate people while you're negotiating with them on what status quo, because, you know, candidly, they'll think is Panther or is the buyer kind of saying what they want me to hear. Right. And then you never know if they're just in the market, which is okay for people to be, but in the market for a free valuation check or kind of an ego boost at the same time, but not get a deal done. Right. One thing we talked about before we push record was an interesting business that you, you were getting ready to buy last year. 2022 was tumultuous in a lot of ways. The price of capital went up by many multiples based upon interest rate changes, at least at the debt capital a piece of the stack. You're still working on this transaction, but it's taken like a very material change in terms of structure. I'd love to just maybe spend a little bit of time hearing about the business or 
minimally hearing about the structure and the evolution of the structure and just the, the sort of second and third life of the deal. There's definitely an elevated amount of dialogue right now around deal structuring from what I can just hear in the market that we serve and that I serve. And so I think there's a really, really interesting opportunity just to talk about a deal like this that has changed so much in terms of its structure. You want to dive into that for a bit? Yeah, let's, let's do that. Okay. And I think for, for benefit of the audience, you know, on the Panther side, we really are focusing now on three verticals. That's IT technology as one, business services, and e-commerce. And we have about four operating partners that are sprinkled across those different verticals. So this company, we actually met through Axial. So thank you, Peter, and shout out to Axial for helping us find the company. <laughs> when we met the company, it was about two, maybe 2.3 million in EBITDA. And they just finished 2022 at 4 million of EBITDA. So nice organic growth. Met the company, I want to say, November or so, 2021. You know, there was, at the time, the largest customer was coming up for a five-year renewal cycle, 50% revenue concentration, I believe in March 2022. So a lot to like about the company. Founders, a fantastic person, worked within government, right, for them themselves for about 18 years before spinning out and starting this IT government contract for themselves. And this customer of theirs, was actually at an agency that they worked at. So interesting backstory, interesting relationship. We got to terms and it had a large earnout of about 40% to kind of offset some of that with the largest customer. So that was the first evolution. And right before LOI, founder, which was fair, said, you know what, let's pause. Let's wait 60 days, 75 days for me to get this under contract and let's pick things back up. Certainly not something you love to hear, right? But it's okay. So we said, not a problem. Let's be in touch. I think it was like 40 or 50 days later, I get a call and founders like, we got the customer under contract for five years, kind of as the person told me they would. And I was like, good for you. Let's pick things back up. So we picked things back up rather quickly, got under LOI in July, I believe it was 2022. There was still a little bit of diligence we had to do fundamentally on the business post LOI because the business still today has some clearances being secret and top secret clearances still on some of the top secret stuff. I don't even know everything because you can't, but you know enough to understand what the company does for those vehicles and for those parts of government. So after we kind of got comfortable with some of those parts that the CEO didn't want to share to LOI, I think it was early August or yeah, maybe end of July. And then we said, okay, we have a good understanding of the business. There's some small business components that unfortunately were not clear to us, even though we asked till before LOI. So that was an interesting hurdle. And that's important for people that don't have small business experience in government contracting is because you can only have certain types of equity to not trigger a now large business status for a small business company. So we ended up going to two SBICs, fantastic partners, one here in Los Angeles, one in Philadelphia, that it took time, but they ultimately got very comfortable with the business. Since it was an SBIC, which has SBA dollars, right? It would not trigger a rule of affiliation, meaning the business post-investment, because we were taking control, would not lose or jeopardize their small business status. So we were going to be coming in with about 14 million of capital, about 9 million of uni, about two and a half or so was coming from the SBICs. Panther as an SPV, friends and family in another family office were coming in with about 1.5. And the seller was going to roll just about 3 million, all in about 17 and a half enterprise value and own about 40%. So everyone's happy. We're chugging along. And then interest rates start rising, which we kind of foresaw. And 
we've had conversations. And the CEO, which I don't blame them, eventually said, you know what, David, not comfortable with having debt on the business. Cost of capital may become 13, 14% end of 2023. Can we pivot this to an all cash transaction, right? And at that point, we were like 50 days away from closing, starting quality of earnings. We had not started lender negotiations for docs, which I'm happy we didn't. And we kind of had to go pencils down. So that was a big blow. You know, when, when you're in it, you're emotionally in it. I brought in a virtual CFO who had government contracting experience. They were incredible partners and still involved since November 2021. Another IT operating partner that had a relationship and still does with a virtual CFO since November. So us as a team, were, we were going to be doing the GP together. We were almost like, oh my God, what's going on? We spent a year or maybe yeah, just about a year on this company. So we pivoted going back to the CEO and said, we can't do an all equity transaction. It's going to trigger some technical issues with your small business status. And candidly, if we're doing all equity, valuation has to drop in half. That's not what the CEO wanted to hear. So we kind of scratched our heads together and came up with a new structure where it's going to be a structured equity transaction where we're going to be helping the company go along the same thesis that we always had, helping them build out a sales and marketing team, helping them build out middle management, helping them grow the enterprise side of the business, which is only about 20% of the business today. So it's not just GovCon. And as the company grows, we're going to have the right to claw back equity as a mechanism so that we're riding the upside of the company. And we've kind of aligned ourselves to say, instead of using financial leverage, we'll use performance leverage where our equity grows as the company does. And we're still getting standard management fees and other benefits for helping out the company along the way. So all in all, having seen other deals that we've done or other people fall apart in 2022, super fortunate and happy for the CEO, you know, her creativity and ours to be able to find a middle ground that makes sense for them and us. So hopefully that long rant helps explain some of the evolution of the deal here. No, I mean, it's, it's a great I want to pick it apart just a tiny bit more. You meet the business owner, you're excited about the deal, you're under LOI prior to, or you're coming to LOI and getting to terms more or less prior to a 50% customer concentration, five-year renewal conversation, right? Perfect. So you've come to terms prior to that renewal occurring, where that renewal accounts for 50% of current top line and probably more than 50% of bottom line, right? Yep. Owner says, let me get this renewed <laughs> so that I'm in a stronger position to, to negotiate, right? And, and maybe you as the buyer are also in a position to have more visibility, right? And Yeah, it was the right, the, the right move. And I give the CEO, she, she was thinking about things more rationally and we were all excited emotionally, if that makes sense. Yeah, right. She goes off and successfully renews this contract more or less on identical or as good or better economic terms for the next five years, right? Actually better. So we're everyone's happy. <laughs> okay. You come back to the table. Do you recut a new deal at this point based upon that material change? We did slightly, yes. Okay. Some of it was based on growth that the business was having, and some of it was based on backlog of what that was going to look like. Because with this new contract, not to get too technical, but the company to the, the customer before was a designated sub. So they were a sub and they went from a sub to a teammate. So the new prime that was coming in really liked the company and said, you did a fantastic job. We don't want you to be a sub. We want you to be a teammate. 
which means as other task orders come to light, you as the company can now chase after more business under this contract vehicle. So that was better. The way they were billing, I think from a TNM to a cost or a fix was better because the company was getting more efficient. So there was margin benefits and revenue benefits, if that makes sense. Did you change valuation or did you change earnout or were there a couple of toggles moving? Great question. Earnout was dropped entirely. It just became seller rollover. And as we started to share some of our relationships, some of our thoughts, we trickled from like a 15% role to actually a 30% or 35% role. So CEO was getting more and more excited. We were getting more and more excited. So it just kind of naturally evolved as the stability of the business started to prove forward. That's worth just punctuating is the deal went from a 40% earnout to zero earnout as a result of having this contract visibility. Yes. That's a really important thing for business owners who are listening to appreciate because there's a really big difference between a 40% earnout and no earnout. That's really significant. So that's phase one to phase two. Phase two to phase three is now the business has renewed this contract. Then interest rates are spiking. Cost of debt on a total all-in blended basis has a credible path to being like low teens cost of debt capital. And the owner is just getting anxious about that and asks if you can move to an all equity, all cash transaction. And from your perspective, roughly speaking, that the way that you guys did the math, that roughly dropped the valuation of the business roughly in half. Can you explain how that works? Like why does why did it drop it by that amount? And how did you get to that general new price zone with all equity? Totally. Yeah. And I think it's important to highlight, you know, not every deal is the same, right? It's it's like two human beings are very different and companies, I think, are like living beings more or less. So this company was very unique, right? In the fact that they've never had leverage before, never had debt before. So there was a lot of emotional comfort that we had to kind of push towards using debt in a transaction to begin with. And then when cost of debt was going up, I think it it just became a little more intense than anyone would have liked. So going back to your point of why does valuation change, you know, simplistically, let's say someone wants to buy a home for a million bucks and they're going to put $300,000 down, get the other $700,000 from Wells Fargo, right? From another, from mortgage provider. If your bank says, or the seller of the home says, you can buy my home, but you can't use any bank debt. You're like, well, I can maybe put a little bit more money, but I'm not going to put a ton of more equity to get the same asset because before... I wanted to only use 300,000 or so. If not, I can go to another home or another asset to go buy the same priced home for that same 300,000. So I think it's important to highlight, not just for this transaction, but for others, leverage when it's used responsibly is actually a good tool for the buyer. And it's a good tool for the seller because for the seller, right, it allows them to get more value for their asset, right? It allows them, if they're rolling equity, to maintain more equity and not be diluted. And when the story works for everyone, buyer and seller, you pay down the debt, right? You're growing the company. And when there's a little bit of multiple expansion, now you've just added more equity value because your debt doesn't increase, right? Your debt goes down along the way. So that was kind of how we thought about it was there's opportunity costs for dollars that we're investing. It didn't make sense to just do all cash or all equity for a deal like this because the, the financials didn't change, right? The business was still the same business. So now it seems like you structured almost like an ownership framework for you at Panther that is tied to the performance outcome that the business 
achieves with you partially presiding over it. She's still the CEO, I assume, but there's yes. a pretty clear role for you and for Panther. And can you just go through the the way in which you've generally structured how ownership connects to to performance? Because it's this is an interesting mechanic. Yeah, totally. So I think it's a, a very unique situation where Panther was very lucky to bring in very good operating partners here. The operating partners, like I said, one has a lot of CFO and government contracting experience. Another one has a lot of IT experience as a CEO and as a CRO, a chief revenue officer. So the company, right, very cash flow positive, 40% EBITDA margins, no working capital. The business doesn't need cash, right? The business at the end of the day needs help from a business acumen, from a relationship standpoint, and kind of a skill set capacity. So I share that to say that's what got the CEO still excited to do a deal with us, even if we're minimally or not putting much new dollars back in the business. It's because we have people that understand corporate finance well, understand sales and marketing well, understand corporate structure well, right? Want to help make introductions from a business development standpoint. And then can be a good a good part of the team when we ultimately look to exit three, four, five years from now, right? And use the right skill sets and the right relationships to maximize the exit. So coming in, we're having you know compensated for our time. So management fees, as you'd imagine, for a company of this size at four or five million of EBITDA, which is nice. Panther and our operating partners are a part of that. And then as the company grows, we're going to vest almost like a compensatory model, some sort of phantom equity or synthetic equity structure along the way. Reason why we're not doing traditional equity or membership interest is because there's tax considerations when you're paid that in in kind. And there's also some clearances on the business, like I shared for top secret or secret clearance that adding shareholders, even if you're a minority, just adds a lot of administrative work that just wouldn't be worth it for us or the company. So that's kind of how we landed on the synthetic equity structure. So we have it based on either revenue or EBITDA as certain revenue or EBITDA milestones are hit. And for one milestone, it can be revenue, the rest EBITDA. We're going to increase in our distributions and our management fees, right? And our phantom or synthetic equity along the way. Is there, an, does the synthetic equity top out at a certain rough level of ownership? Yeah, great question. Not to exceed around 20 to 25%. So with $0 into the business, there is a path to owning about 20% of the business through, through, <laughs> yeah. through, through performance. No, it's, I'm not saying that because it's crazy. I'm, I think I'm saying it because that's a really interesting alternative to putting a lot yeah. of capital into a business. If you have a very clear set of skills that are well-validated and valued by, by the business owner, it's just really interesting to think about a world in which talent can earn that kind of ownership structure without a dollar, you know, a dollar changing hands. It's really... Totally. And, and I think, again, some of this was a lot of luck meeting the company, again, through Axial. So we got, we got kind of lucky there. And then the operating partners that I brought in, they're fantastic, right? They're gray haired, one of them quite literally. So older than I am, I think that kind of helps the situation of the founder here. And our skill sets collectively as a team just really matches the void of what the company needs, right? So I couldn't have drawn a better scenario myself. I think situations like this are maybe, I don't know, 10% of the time where it can work, but we got very lucky and fortunate. And again, very fortunate in the partner of the CEO that I'm talking about, where she has a long-term focus. She's an extremely trustworthy person. And we've got to know her over the past 15 months. We flew her out to Southern California. 
spend a few days with her. And we're going to hopefully go spend time with her on the East Coast as well, again, post-transaction. So I think it comes down to people that have built a relationship, that their skill sets make sense to work together. And there's a lot of mutual trust built over time. Is there some version of like what you have landed on here in terms of a, an ownership mechanic and a, a way to grow ownership over time through certain outcomes that you could see yourself incorporating into a more traditional deal in a different setting? Yes. Yes. I think what that looks like is still TBD. And I think it's candidly TBD per company or per situation. So the nice thing is, on, like I said, on the Panther side, we're really trying to stay to just three verticals, right? At least right now, you know, I think as waters continue to get choppy, cost of capital continues to get expensive, you really have to have specialization. You really have to be dialed into industries, knowing what competitors are doing, speak the lingo. So there's another company that we're super excited about, West Coast-based VAR slash managed service provider. I've known this company since early 2022. We went pencils down. The company is growing. And an interesting thing that we saw is they have some sales folks that are getting 40 to 50% of the gross profit on sales they're delivering on the VAR side, right? And that's a little expensive because then your variable cost as you grow almost feels like a fixed cost. So these are little things I brought up to the CEO and he's like, well, I can't change people's lives by lowering it, David. You know, not in a bad way. What do you think I should do? And we thought about it. I came back. I'm like, why don't you give them stock options? Tell them we're going to lower some of your fixed comp by way of percent of margin contribution, but we'll give you ownership in the company. We're trying to change our business model to be more services oriented. The way you sell that is different. And if you're going to be a long-term salesperson or owner of the company, we need you to own services and we need to focus on growth. And as the company has distributions, there's another exit. You'll be part of that and get paid more, right? So I share that little anecdote to say we're trying to stick to areas where we can really be helpful operationally and in the weeds as opposed to just the deal mechanic side. So I think this has been a good blueprint or case study of being nimble, right? Trying to be value add in areas that you understand well. And, and I'll say it's not going to be our primary focus through deals like this, but I certainly think it's a way that we can pivot when the industry or situation calls for it. It's a great story. I'm glad we spent some time on it. You're also writing a weekly Substack. <laughs> Substack started in the world of sexy technology, not unsexy technology, which is the world the world that you're in. Tell us a little bit about that. Like, why did you just start to do that? What have you seen so far in the way of results or engagement? What are you experimenting with there? Or what are you hoping for there? Or what's working? No, appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah, we started that. In December, you know, candidly, we have a very good junior person at a marketing agency that we developed a relationship with. You know, I'll just say their name's DealBridge. They're fantastic, right? And they really help us with some of the copy. They really help us with some of the research. But myself and my operating partners, actually, each week, we're looking for different content or trends or articles. So one of my operating partners on the e-commerce side, one on the business services side, and two on the IT side. They send me articles, right? I look at it like, this is interesting. We talked about this last time. Let's not talk about it this time. I'll highlight certain phrases or themes that I like. We'll send it to the marketing team, right? And then they're every other week, so twice a month, helping us put out these newsletters. Then it comes back to me and my operating partners. And is there a context we can add? Is there certain massage points? And then we get it out to them and they send it. And they're fantastic, whether it's them or another group. I think for independent sponsors and, and lower middle market P firms, it's a crowded space, right? So staying top of mind with bankers, staying top of mind with brokers, 
And for us, we're very long-term focused. So there's a lot of CEOs on deals that we've met through banks or through brokers that the process failed. And, you know, I try to maintain a relationship or some of those rare proprietary ones, right? Where they're on our distribution. And every few weeks, we get an email from them saying, this is great, let's catch up. Or some family offices we're talking to or SBICs, they email us back and they're like, David, this is great, right? What do you think about this? What do you think about that? So the thesis was, it's a crowded space. There's a lot of people that I know, my operating partners know. I try to spend at least a quarter of my time maintaining existing relationships, but this has been a good way for us to just stay in mind and in people's inboxes with relevant content that's continually fresh. And I think it's been paying for itself so far. That's really cool. I have not seen a lot of Substack uptake by the small business M&A community. <laughs> There's some. There's definitely some, but I haven't seen much. And so I wanted to highlight. I think it's really cool. I appreciate that. Yeah. When you think about like Panther, David, do you think about Panther as like your investment business for the rest of your career? Like, how do you think about like, is it your platform for a very, very long time? Is it like how you envision spending sort of the rest of your, you know, your professional life? Just how did you think about Panther? How are you thinking about it? Yeah. Just what's the long view on Panther and how are you thinking about it right now? Yeah. I think as I learned earlier in high school and college, you plan and God laughs, right? So I think directionally, I have an idea, right? But the details may change, so to speak. So definitely want to continue Panther for next, who knows, one to two decades, right? At the end of the day, like I said, I love business. I don't play golf. I don't follow sports anymore. To me, <laughs> business, talking to CEOs, I love it. I get energy talking to people. And I think I'm good at it in certain business verticals. So I'd like to continue doing this for a while. There are some family offices we've talked to that we're continually to show first looks at for deals, almost like an informal rofer with a pledge structure. So I'd like to kind of formalize some of those capital relationships, whether that's single LP or a few LPs on deals. Not sure if we'd like to go, you know, the traditional funded private equity route, or if we just like to have one or two strong LPs where it can be a lot more cleaner, less admin, less governance, but still doing quality work and making good risk adjusted return for our investors. But I'd say, yeah, that, that's kind of the focus right now is building the company brick by brick, deal by deal, relationship by relationship. But I think, you know, the thesis and journey will evolve and you just have to be in a healthy way, paranoid to be competitive and do what's relevant along the way. I've learned a ton. It's been really fun. It's great to hear this first person I've interviewed who's gone from what sounds like mostly a self-funded search to a CEO, to a cashed out CEO, to now onto your next entrepreneurial venture. So it's a, a good new type of interview for everybody who's been listening. Thank you for giving us such a big chunk of your Friday. It's been really great. I've really enjoyed it, David. Likewise, really appreciate you guys making the time. And again, you guys are great partners, so always happy to be helpful. Thank you, Peter. All right, David, till next time. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode, check out Axial.com. There you'll find every episode of this podcast, as well as our recorded Axial member roundtables, some downloadable tools for dealmakers, Axial's quarterly league table rankings of top small business acquirers and investment banks, and lots of other useful content that we've created over the course of time. If you're interested in joining Axial as either an acquirer, an owner considering an exit, or as a sell-side M&A advisor, you can get started for free at Axial.com as well. Lastly, if you have ideas for podcast show guests, feel free to reach out to me directly at peter at axial.net.
I promise I will respond. Thanks for listening.